Good morning, everyone. Um, let me pray and we'll begin right away. Father, um, thank you for this amazing teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you that you have called your children apart to be different, to be in the world but not of it, to be people who are salt and light. But, oh Lord, we cannot do these things without the power of your Spirit in our lives, and so we pray that you will be with us, that you will teach us, that you will expand our love for you and our love for our neighbor. Father, would you be with me today as I teach? Would you keep me from saying anything that is unworthy of you? And would you be glorified in Christ's name? Amen. We live in a time of enormous upheaval. There are wars and rumors of war, and hanging over us is the ever-present threat of a no nuclear holocaust. There are earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and droughts and floods, and we've seen those happening in our world over the past year. There are great divisions in the world between countries, between races, between religions, between political parties. There are divisions within families, within churches, and my friends, there are divisions within our own hearts. There is racial unrest and there is lawlessness. There is enormous wealth and unrelenting poverty. There is corruption and there is unimaginable debauchery. There are mass killings and terrorism reigns in all parts of the world. And leader, there are leaders who do not hesitate to use the horror of chemical weapons upon innocent people. In our world today, we consider marriage something that is, can be thrown away when it gets too hard, when it is not easy. We think it is disposable and we go looking for something better, something that will offer more hap a happiness. And often there is someone left behind who is devastated. There are children left paying the price. There is in our world today the killing of the most helpless, the unborn, and women celebrate their liberation and demand that they have laws to protect their rights. And yet at the same time, they are loath to allow any limits to protect the unborn within the mother's womb. We have broken down all walls of purity and exult in absolute sexual freedom. We are divided over the definition of marriage itself. We have discarded God's design of genders, and we have discarded any idea of sin. Absolute truth is an idea that has lost any meaning because we have decided we will define our own truth. There are, my friends, at this moment, this very moment, little children and young women being forced into the sex trade to feed the unending lust of evil men. These helpless ones are sold by their fathers and mothers for money, are simply taken off the streets never to be seen again, except in the darkness of their own captivity. 
They are held in unending bondage. Children who will never be children. Women who will never know freedom. Never know love. Never know joy. And we say, oh Lord, how long? How long? My friends, that is our world today. And it all seems so helpless. And yet, one of the themes in all of the commentaries that I have read on the Sermon on the Mount touches on the truth that the whole theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is this. God's purpose has always been to call out a people for himself. John Scott writes this. This people that God calls apart is a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And their vocation is to be true to their identity. And that identity is to be different. Different in all of their outlook and in their behavior in this way, world. And he continues, The Sermon on the Mount describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God's beloved Son. And what they look like is different, and Jesus calls us to make a difference. We are to be a counterculture. My friends, that's what we are about to study together. We are about to face those truths together. We are those who are called to be different. Different from that world we just talked about. Radically different. That is what is before us today. And we must decide how seriously we will engage this study. Let's be honest. There's brokenness in this room. There's division in this room. There are broken marriages in this room. And there is confusion and division in our own hearts as we decide what we will love. And yet we are those who have been called apart to be different. We are called to love one another. We are called to come together under God's gracious rule. How convicted I have been as I've been studying the sermon. The sermon will not leave you alone. It will not leave you unscathed. And the question before me and before you are these. How carefully have we been seeking to be different and to trust God's ways? Absolutely. To say, yes, Lord. Are we ready to acknowledge that we are part of that counterculture that God calls his chosen to be? Do we need to repent that we have become too comfortable in our lives as Christians, that perhaps in some ways there is little difference between our church and the world, and we just might be part of that problem. I am asking myself, and am I willing to listen and be convicted by the Spirit because, and by the sermon, because the sermon is meant to be convicting. Do I desire that my life would be a life of salt and light? Do I desire to bring light in the darkness to influence the world for good? Or do I like living my comfortable life? 
The sermon is a call to those who belong to Jesus. It's about kingdom life. It's about being different from the world. It's about love and humility and faithfulness and forgiving, forgiveness and dying to self. What we are about to study will make an immense call in our lives. My dear friends, we are not to take on the standards of the world, not even close. We are to be different, and I ask you, are we ready to be different in a deeper way than we have ever been? I don't know what that looks like for each of us individually, but are we ready to have the Spirit do a deeper and deeper work in our hearts and in our lives? Are we ready to join together to pray that we will take seriously the call of the sermon? Are we ready for our church to be a city on a hill? That people will point to our church and say, there is just something about those people. Are we ready for our lives to be lights in the darkness? You see, I think each one of us must answer that question individually. But let me just say this to you. That is the, serm that is the call that the sermon presents to us. That is the subject we have before us. One commentator writes this, he says, the sermon will crush you under its weight because its requirements are so lofty. But it also points you to the supply, to the source of power. We are meant to be different because we belong to the king and he is powerful and he is kind. One of my favorite passages in all of the Chronicles of Narnia is the part where Lucy is ready to see, just about ready to go see Aslan, and she asks this question, is he safe? Who said anything about safe is the answer. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. My friends, Jesus is not calling us to be safe, but he is calling us to be radically different and to follow him, and he has promised to be with us. So let's look, have a big general look first at the sermon and its seemingly impossible call upon how our lives are to look. And the first question, easy, that we must ask is, is the, is the sermon meant to be lived? Or maybe it's meant for a, for a future time. That's what some people argue. This is for the future time when the Lord comes again. Is it meant to be lived right now? Well, I can answer that question right away. The answer is yes. But I also want to tell you that there are some qualifications. They are beautiful qualifications, actually. And the first one is you must be a believer. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no hope that you can live the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in the book of Acts just before his ascension? He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the whole earth. 
But just before he said those words, he told them, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't leave. Don't try to go and make disciples until that Holy Spirit comes. You can't live the sermon of the kingdom. You can't be salt and light. You can't be part of the counterculture without the spirit of the living God. And you need him in power. And then you are ready. That's our call. So how do we begin to live what Jesus is calling his children to live? How do we begin to be those people? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that you must understand the sermon in general before you can understand what it means in its fullness. And he goes on to say, the sermon is a description of the way of life that flows out of you who are in Christ. One commentator also says this, he says this about the sermon, and I love this, he says, Read the sermon with mercy. We'll come back to that in a minute. But that's essentially what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, just with a little different twist. He says so much of the sermon is using a particular illustration to show forth a general principle and attitude. In other words, in the sermon where it says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that's not a law. That isn't a law. It's more than a law. He says, if in a situation you felt that it would be the loving thing to do to give someone your coat, then of course you should do that if that's the loving thing to do. But that's not what this is teaching. It's not just teaching that. If someone asks you to go with them a, a mile and you go too, you're not finished. What it is teaching is this, that I am ready to do the most loving thing that is needful. If someone needs my cloak, I will readily part with it for love's sake. I will give them my shoes also. And my friends, if someone asks you to go with them a mile are two miles because they are in need. Don't stop going until that need is gone. That is what reading the sermon with mercy means. So how does Martin Lloyd-Jones go on to illustrate the big picture? And this is so helpful, my friends. So how are we to read and live the sermon? He says this, A man may play quite accurately a beautiful piece of music, say, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And he may make no mistakes at all. He may play every note absolutely perfectly. And yet the question is, did he really play the music Beethoven wrote? And the answer that Lloyd-Jones gives is no. It is no because that is not how Beethoven meant it to be played. The man played it with no heart, with no love, simply with mechanics. He missed the soul of the music. He missed the heart of the music and its beauty. 
A true musician will always remember the rules and the regulation of music. They will play the notes right. They will understand what a half note is, what a quarter note is. But you cannot separate the spirit and the letter. They must be held together, and the meaning is this. Don't make the sermon law written on stone. Don't just follow the notes. See the depth behind the words. It will be deeper. It will be more beautiful. It will be alive when the Spirit is writing it upon your heart. One commentator writes this. The sermon is far more than rules. It is a call to deeply search your own heart. The teaching is meant to lay your heart bare. Motives will be examined. Love will be revealed in action, not just in feeling. We will see how double-minded we truly are when we realize that we have a great desire to parade our righteousness before people whenever we do something. Layer after layer of our deceptive hearts will be torn open, but it's only to prepare us for the work ahead. Day after day, we will be facing the world and facing our own heart, and we will be learning as we go along. And yes, there is a cost ahead, but there is an adventure ahead by the power of the Spirit. My friends, our question is this. We can keep the letter of the law by ourselves. We don't need the Spirit. We can go out and we can give someone our tunic. But when it requires us to lay down our lives, we are going to need the power of the Spirit. And that's the big picture of how we look at the sermon. So now a few words about the big picture of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not a choose one or two that you like kind of thing. And I'm sure you talked about this in your small groups. The Beatitudes are a whole that are linked together in a beautiful sequence. And they describe what every Christian is meant to manifest. And it will become deeper and deeper as you grow in the Lord. But it is what every Christian is meant to manifest. In other words, this is the character of a Christian and a Christian alone. And the difference is the Holy Spirit working it into our hearts, this deeper and deeper work. It will never be finished in this life, my friends. But it will be a growing work in all of your life. And let me add this undeniable truth. A Christian's life is defined by a different view of everything. Oh, sometimes I, I know we find ourselves too affiliated with the world, but when we do we will find more and more it doesn't satisfy. And the world will become more and more alien to us. We are not to become friends of the world. The world is not a friend of God. That is what I am seeing. That is why I, what I am beginning to learn. We know we are made for a different world. We have a different king who rules even now. We are in the world, but we are not of it. And my friends, those truths are to inform our way of thinking and living and loving. We may grow weak at times, 
but the Spirit will be working to awaken us to be who we are. This is the blessedness of being a Christian. This is the very heartbeat of who we are. The blessings that are, are attached to the Beatitude are ours. They're ours. They are God's promises. This is who you are, he says. Now go and be who you are, and I promise you blessing. Put them around you. Hold them tight. They are God's promises to you. So, as we close this morning, we're going to look at the first four Beatitudes and know that because you belong to him, these things are yours. Now, since this was the focus of our homework this week, I'll just try to weave a a small tapestry of the work of the Spirit and what he is about in our hearts. But first, let me define what blessedness means. And you studied this, but in summary, this does not mean happiness, not in the way we describe happiness. Although one can feel happy and happy and happy again as they grow deeper in an understanding of each of these Beatitudes. But as one commentator says, he says, happiness is subjective. This is not subjective. This is what God thinks of you. This is what God promises you. That's not subjective. And on account of that, he declares, you are blessed. Not you will be blessed. You are blessed. And with each beatitude, Jesus draws out just a particular blessing that that particular beatitude showers upon you. And so we begin with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the place where we begin, or should I say, this is the place where the spirit begins. It is where we discover our spiritual bankruptcy. We discover that we truly have nothing to commend us to God. There was a time, probably, when we were first new believers that we thought we had quite a lot about us that would make God really happy to have us. But little by little, perhaps in a moment, we understood. And the gospel became alive and we saw ourselves and we saw ourselves as destitute. My friends, we must begin here. We must realize who we are and we are utterly needy every moment. We must hold on to Jesus. I know what goes on in my own heart. I know my selfishness. I know my judgmental spirit. I know how I can be charmed by the world. I cannot stand, my friends, under the holy gaze of God. I cannot. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, that's just it. He knows. He knows that we cannot stand under his gaze. And so he pours out his righteousness upon his. And he says, you are mine. That is the blessedness. Ours is the kingdom of heaven now and forever. My friends, as we live this life of the kingdom, we find ourselves needing to return to this reality to this beatitude often. We will return when we find that we've grown cold. And we will come and we will tell him, I need 
to be poor because I need you to tell me who I am. We will return when our sin is so heavy upon us that we cannot rise, and this beatitude is our great and unchanging reality. We are sinners saved by grace. We are beloved children of the living God, and yours is the kingdom of heaven forever. Then we come to blessed are those who mourn. The very beatitude seems at first contradictory. How can we be blessed and be mourning? However, as one begins to understand the flow of the beauty of the Beatitudes, we find a perfect reason why we are blessed when we mourn. We mourn because sin is still part of our lives, and we love the world too much. We mourn because of the sins that I mentioned at the very beginning, and that these sins are delighted in by many, that the sin, these sins are precious to many. How can we not mourn that our God is blasphemed every day? That people are loving the things that God hates? How can we not mourn that Jesus is not adorned but he is mocked? How can we not mourn that God's word is not believed but Aside. Of course, once we see the greatness of his love that he has lavished upon us by free grace, how can we not mourn? But the promise is he comforts us, he forgives us, and he casts our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It is paid in full, my friends. Don't bring them up anymore. He paid for them. I don't mean don't confess your sin anymore. I mean that when you have been forgiven, take it to heart. One commentator says, luxuriate in the deep joy of forgiveness. Then we come to blessed are the meek. Again, how perfectly this flow from the Beatitudes before. We know we have nothing to boast of, nothing that would give us any reason whatsoever to proclaim our worthiness. We are spiritually bankrupt and we have no end to the number of sins. We are mourning and will continue to mourn until that day. So we see ourselves rightly and therefore we are humbled and we are meek. How can I be anything? How can I be anything but meek? How can I want to judge other people? When I look at myself in the mirror, how can I not be merciful to them? When the Lord has been merciful beyond measure to me, when I see you struggling with sin, let it be in my heart that I become an encourager and that I walk with you. How dare I be a gossip about your sin, about who you are? How dare I? When I know what I am. We must never cast away the sinner. But go with love to him. Because we are a sinner in need of grace. Of course the world finds such people weak. And they seek to walk all over the meek. But the blessing promised is we inherit the earth. Do you know what that means? 
It means in that glorious day of the rising of the new heavens and the new earth, God says to his own, this is your land. This is the always promised land flowing with milk and honey. This is Abraham's land and the land of his offspring. This is beautiful land that we receive that will be ours forever with no more sickness, no more death, no more enemies. A land of such glory that we will never need for anything. The new Jerusalem and the river of life will flow endlessly through it. And the greatest blessing of all is that God will be with us. He will dwell with us forever. And therefore, how can we not hunger and thirst after righteousness? We should be hungering that each of us would adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would long for God to receive the glory due his name. We should long that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We should hunger for that worship of heart and mind and soul every day, that that would be foremost in our lives. We should hunger for that worship of heart that longs for God to be honored. We must seek to live in a way that brings righteousness to the ends of the earth. My friends, we should work for the freedom of those women and children who have been sold into sexual slavery. Not only do we hunger and thirst, we eat and drink of it. We go and we begin to feed. We must fight for the unborn and not celebrate. We must hate poverty and seek to do all we can with prayer and wisdom for the flourishing of people. We must fight for our marriages. Fight for them, not walk away from them. We must fight for the innocence of our children and grandchildren as they face this dark world and see the lies and hear the lies. We must show forth the beauty of goodness and righteousness. And so we say, Lord, let us seek to love across and serve every generation, every racial group, every broken-hearted person. Lord, let us proclaim the gospel with grace and with power, for that is the way of healing of all brokenness and the way to break down walls. And Lord, let us proclaim the love of Jesus in word and in deed. Oh Lord, let that be our food and our drink. Fill us with spiritual caring and love and power beginning this day. Lord, let your children be different and let us shine as lights of your grace in this world. Lord, let us continually hunger and thirst for righteousness and satisfy us as you have promised. And then give us that hunger and thirst again, Lord, and satisfy us with your love. And Lord, then give us that hunger again and satisfy us again and continue every day until that day. For someday, Lord, we will sit with you at that great banquet table. 
and we will be eternally satisfied in your presence. My friends, that is our story. May we live it by his power and with the unending grace that has been bestowed upon us. For we belong to him. Amen.